So I'd like to introduce tonight's um, speaker, uh, Cameron Wheatley. So Cam is the Communications Coordinator at Environment Victoria, and Cam first became involved with action on, the, on climate change as part of the Australian Youth Climate Coalition. So over lots of years of volunteering and as the state coordinator, Cam learned about the importance of effective communication strategies in climate action and advocacy. He then went on to study global media communication at Melbourne Uni and has worked, in sorry, worked with Environment Victoria and the communications team for five years. So he's now the communications coordinator, as I said, and he manages large scale social media campaigns for state, elect state elections and manages EV's digital strategy. So uh, with that, I will hand over to Cam, over to you. Thanks, Sam. Um, thanks for that intro. Um, yeah, uh, I'm really passionate about communications and social media. I think it's really important. I think that um, the, the skills that I'll hopefully, um, that you'll get tonight, hopefully you can apply in lots of different ways. It's not just for, um, you know, specialists. I think the more people that know this stuff, um, the better and more effective we can all be. Um, and also, uh, thanks to our council for running these sessions. I think it's really great that there are opportunities um, to share uh, this knowledge um, for people. Um, so thanks for coming along and also thanks to everyone that filled out the uh, pre-session survey. Um, what I got from that was that um, there are people here with a wide variety of experiences and levels of knowledge. So I've tried to make sure um, everyone will get some useful things out of this session tonight. Uh, and th for those who are just getting started in climate activ ad advocacy or activism, there will be um, a lot of things you can apply if you're just posting from your own social media account. But also I think um, this will allow you to think bigger. Maybe you can apply what you learn here while volunteering with another organization. Um, you know, maybe at Environment Victoria, it's always great to have volunteers who know how to write good social media posts and have ideas for reaching out online. Um, we're running a campaign at the moment to build back better, which is how to frame the Victorian government's response to coronavirus so that it's focused on sustainable um, solutions. And there's a really big kind of community organizing aspect and online aspect to that. Um, beyond that, maybe you could think about volunteering for your local environment climate group or um, helping an election candidate with their social media. Um, you know, so hopefully, even if you're just doing your own thing now, you can, this will help you to kind of step up to do something um, additional. Um, so the outline for tonight's session, I've just, I've split it into two broad sections. Um, so the first section is what your message is, um, because being an effective advocate uh, means have an having an effective message. So you can master all of the technical aspects of social media. You can go viral and create the funniest memes, but there's no point being able to spread a message unless it's an effective message that makes people feel empowered and want to engage and want to take action. Um, and then I'll do a quick, tiny little um, easy exercise. Um, and then after thinking about the what, we can get into the how. Um, so if I could tell you a guaranteed method to make everything you post go viral, um, other than maybe cat memes, uh, then I would be really, really rich. Um, <laughs> the reality is unless you're a celebrity or a public figure, building a large audience takes a lot of time and resources. So instead what I'll do is I'll present some smaller practical ideas about how you can use social media to reach out in a tactical way um, and go beyond just hitting the post button and hoping for the best. Um, uh, because at the end of the day, it's about building community, not just a large disengaged audience. 
Um, and then, uh, as Sam mentioned at the end, we'll have uh, time for questions. Um, there we go. There it is. Um, so I've tried to focus on basic principles that will apply across all social media platforms. Um, but where I do cover technical stuff, it'll be mainly focused on Facebook because it's just the biggest. Um, and if you have questions about more detailed or technical things, um, then I'm more than happy for you to contact me after the session as well and I can help you out. Um, I'll put my contact details uh, up at the end. Um, so let's get started. So the first thing is, what's your message? Uh, now I could talk forever about this. Um, I really could, <laughs> but I'm just gonna go through a couple of the most important elements to get you thinking a little bit more critically about how you can make your message more effective and encourage people to actually engage and take action and also avoid some of the common mistakes with your message um, that can actually be counterproductive without you even knowing. Um, so the first thing, um, the first tip and one of the most important is to spread active hope. Um, and I mean active hope because I'm not talking about like this she'll be right kind of optimism that excuses us from having to do anything. Um, I mean, spreading a message that yes, this is scary and it's huge, but we can solve this and we have a choice to act. Um, but building hope is actually one of the single greatest um, challenges that the climate emergency presents. Um, and you don't have to take my word for it. This is uh, a quote from Michael Mann, which says, the greatest threat I see to climate action is the paralysis that comes from disengagement, and disillusionment and despair. So. Um, this guy knows the science inside out. He was the first to testify about climate change to the US Congress in the 80s. But the thing that worries him most is our response to it. Um, it's not a particular element of the science. Um, and he's right, because uh, if we have no hope, um, and if people don't believe their actions will make a difference and they won't do anything, even if they understand and are really concerned about the science, um, and this isn't just an intellectual argument. At the moment, there is a lot of despair and disengagement when it comes to the climate emergency. Um, so maybe just type your answers into the chat, but I want uh, everyone to have a guess. So Roy Morgan did some surveys at the end of last year. And one of the questions they asked was, um, do you think it's already too late to solve the climate crisis? Uh, and so I want you to have a think of what percentage of 18 to 24 year olds think that it's already too late and maybe just type your responses into the chat window. 80, 75, 36, 50, 35, 20. All right, pretty big range. There's a few people who are spot on. I don't know, uh, actually, no, one person, two people that are spot on. Maybe you've seen this already. Um, so, the actual number is 36%. So there are some people that are a lot more pessimistic than the reality. Um, <laughs> but I still think this is um, a pretty concerning number. That means that one in three young people don't think that there's anything to be done about this and that it's already too late, which is a pretty, a pretty scary number. And that number has increased significant in recent times. So I think that when we're thinking about a message, we really have to be thinking about how we counter that trend. Um, but for some of you might be pleasantly surprised for people that guess 80 or 70%. <laughs> um, so 
this basic point is that creating active hope isn't just like a feel good thing that makes people feel better about the situation. It's actually um, really strategic because without it, people won't act. Um, but the hope side of things can be hard because it's the threats that naturally grain, uh, gain our attention and our brains are just wired that way. So we can kind of share the ideological fights um, or the, you know, the latest disaster, but it's the, it's the creating hope that we need to be really um, focused on. Um, yeah. So we need to match, make sure we match the fear and urgency when we're talking about cl the climate emergency with the message of hope that we have a choice about what our future looks like and that when caring citizens work together, great things happen. So we can't just get scared of, crap out of people excuse my french we just can't scare people into taking action fear is important but it needs to be balanced with an active and empowered sense of hope um and this is something that a lot of brilliant leaders do really well so people like winston churchill martin luther king greta thunberg they articulate people's fears without pulling any punches which actually gives them a sense of authenticity because the things they were talking about were and are big and scary, but they also provide hope and a pathway for action with equal conviction. Um, and there's actually a common formula that these speakers tend to use, which is they establish the existential nature of the threat without pulling any punches. But we can't stop there. We need to then appeal for a renewed action and sense of agency using hard truths and, and hope. And that is a real winning formula. So. Um, and, and there is real reason for hope when it comes to the climate emergency. So I've, I've picked out a few examples. Some of them are a little bit old now, but you know, the fossil fuel industry is losing its social license really, really quickly. A huge number of Australians seriously get the climate emergency, like really get it and really want action. Um, you know, from an energy perspective, clean energy is really starting to clobber fossil fuels even in australia with the, the federal government that we have um in newcastle the local council there has become the first to go to 100 percent renewable energy and that's home to the world's largest coal port so i understand the science reasonably well i understand the challenges we face but you know we need to make sure that we are also emphasizing the hope and the agency that we have um, and so this might all sound a little bit kind of theoretical or whatever. So I, um, I've added these tips from a really great organization called Hope Based Communication. So basically these are five practical ways that you can sort of check, check through when you're writing a piece of content, whether that be online or anywhere really, um, in all of your advocacy um, that will help you transform the same piece of text into something that's more engaging and more hopeful. So I'm not going to go through each one of them. I'll, I'm happy to share the slides after this, or you can also go to the website. Um, but that's one practical way that um, we can make sure that we're kind of spreading active hope. Um, so I've already, I've, I've got a bit of time. I just uh, conscious of, going on for too long. We, we've all got dinner to eat. Um, so while I'm talking about active hope, I also want to make a quick note on how we um, criticize government and how we talk about government. So a lot of climate advocacy hinges on some kind of government policy or action. 
So when we criticize governments, we need to be very careful that we under, aren't undermining the actual idea of democracy itself, um, because there's already growing disillusionment with democracy, which is uh, incredibly justified. Um, but if our supporters see governments or even worse, the idea of democracy as something that's wholly useless or corrupt and not up to the task, um, then people won't be able, then people won't believe our democratic system's able to deliver change and they're not going to follow our calls to action. <laughs> so, um, and this doesn't mean that we don't criticize politicians or political decisions, but it means that we need to do it in um, like a tactful way. And so, how we do that is, sorry, I'm just going to click back to the slides. We talk about what a good government can and should do. So we create the expectation and the idea of what good government is, and then we compare. Um, what it does, what doing it this way does is it conveys what they've done wrong in a way that encourages people to think that a good government can work and can do the right thing. Um, and it also helps to focus on specific actions or actors, i.e. the fossil fuel industry, rather than making generalizations about um, government. So I've just typed in two quick examples here, one on the left, which is sort of a pretty typical thing you might see, the government has been bought off by the fossil fuel industry and is doing nothing about the climate crisis. Look, it's technically correct, but it's not a great message. Um, I don't know what I'm supposed to do or feel after reading that. Whereas on the right, it kind of says the same thing, but it creates a more kind of empowering, hopeful um, outcome, which is, you know, the fossil fuel industry and their lobbyists have too much power. Okay, well, let's fix, fix that element of things. Um, our government should listen to the majority of Australians who want a fast and fair transition to clean energy. Kind of saying the same thing, um, but in a more kind of strategic and hopeful way. Um, I just want to throw that in there because that's a really common um, thing that I see online and we need to be aware that we're not undermining this idea of democracy or that our governments can work. Next core point is uh, collaboration, not competition. So this is a, a bit about storytelling and how we talk about the climate emergency. Um, so stories are kind of a shorthand way of encapsulating our society's values and our beliefs about the world and how humans act. And there's always more than one version of a story, which means we need to think about which ones we are sharing and why. Um, when it comes to climate emergency, there's kind of two competing um, narratives. Firstly, um, there's this survival of the fittest version of the emergency story, a story of panic and competition and selfish behavior. Um, and you might think that's a pretty grim view of pe how people react and you're right but it's a powerful story that gets told and shared a lot in our culture. It's the core of a whole lot of disaster and apocalypse style movies. Um, individualistic competition is basically the core ideology of our economic system. Um, and it's also, it's, it's a powerful narrative because people tend to overestimate how selfish their society and the people in it are. So there's some great research done by an organization called Common Cause, where basically they asked people in the US and the UK to rate how important they thought certain compassionate and selfish values were for them. And then they asked, what do you think other people rate these values? And what they found was people personally rated um, compassionate um, values really highly for themselves but when they thought they asked what they thought about other people they thought other people were a lot more selfish than they actually are 
Um, and that little graph is just, uh, you know, one of the graphs in a common cause report, which you can look up online. Um, and it's quite a big gap. Um, and so there are a lot of people out there who are going to naturally imagine and believe this selfish version of the story when they hear the words climate emergency, because they think everyone's more selfish and individualistic than they are, <laughs> um, falsely. Um, and one of the ways I see this play out on social media is when people share messages about the economic value of a natural place. Um, and I think they do that under the mistaken assumption that other people care about money more than they do about nature. And this is a classic example. This is an, an American one, but I've seen Australian ones. I've seen so many examples of this kind of thing, um, even shared by large environmental organizations, which drives me up the wall. Um, <laughs> I won't say who. Um, and so not only does this kind of content kind of miss the mark in terms of what people actually care about, but it also kind of fuels this unhelpful idea that other people are primarily self-interested and care more about money. So don't share this kind of content. <laughs> um, and because it's actually, it's really counterproductive as well because fueling this, this idea about what people care about actually makes everyone less likely to engage in civic behavior, like attending rallies and signing petitions and meeting with their politicians. Because if you think people, other people are selfish and don't care and only care about money, why are you going to do anything, even if you do care? Um, and coming back to the climate emergency story, this understanding of other people as being more selfish than they really are is a problem um, because it makes this a selfish, individualistic, competitive reaction seem almost natural. So we need to stop spreading this perception. Um, and we need to tell a different version of the story, which is based on altruism and collaboration. Because in the reality is that that's what people are really like in disaster situations. There's a whole book by an amazing author called Rebecca Solnit called A Paradise Built in Hell, which talks about this idea. So this picture here is, is a chain of people formed on a, on a beach somewhere in America, I think, that was trying to save someone from a rip. Um, and... And so, and this is how humans behave. Scientifically, it's been, it's been proven that this is our natural reaction to disaster and emergency. And we need to be explicitly telling this story. Um, we need to reiterate that in emergencies, people come together and do what needs to be done, that they don't stop to ask if we're big enough to solve the challenge or how much it will cost. It's just the right thing to do. That's a powerful message for climate action. Um, and it's, it's a much better story and it's more accurate. Um, so, you know, while the greed of the fossil fuel industry and dramatic climate disasters and ideological political fights, like I said before, might be naturally attention grabbing and shareable, we need to make sure that we're sharing those other stories that feed into a positive vision of the world and how people really are. And it's not an overnight thing, but the more people that are aware of this and critiquing what they're sharing with this framework in mind, um, the sooner we can start redefining our sense of who we are as a society and as humans. Um, and so this, again, might seem all a bit abstract. So I thought I'd bring it down to a more practical application um, and look at how this kind of competing narratives about humanity played out around coronavirus. Um, so it comes down to toilet paper versus rainbows and teddy bears. Um, <laughs> so... The stories we tell now about coronavirus um, will shape how others tell the story of coronavirus in the future and shape our society's view of what other people are like and how we behave in an emergency.
So each of these images symbolizes a different worldview and perception of humanity. They're isolated incidents. Um, they can easily come to define our broader perceptions depending on what version gets shared. Um, and that means we need to be selective about what we're sharing. Don't share the toilet paper fights. Don't give it oxygen. Um, it might be funny to criticize people or say something witty, but you just don't fuel that kind of thing because social media works on engagement. So just don't fuel those negative perceptions about how humans behave. Um, so instead of fight or flight, maybe we need to think more about tend and befriend, you know, create a different idea of humanity because that's something that will go a long way in helping us to solve the climate crisis. Um, so before I go into the next section, I might just quickly check in with you, Sam. Are there any uh, burning questions that um, I should address right now? Oh, you're on silent. Oops, Oops sorry. <laughs> um, uh, taking my own advice too seriously. Um, no burning questions, Cam, but one, um, one person has, uh, I guess, posted a question around, you know, talking about... Um, the you know people collaborating and and really you know working together and the kind of the best side of humanity that you've spoken about why is it then that people seemingly um not vote in this way why do they vote perhaps in accordance kind of with their their wallet or kind of in in ways that seem to be kind of less for the common good uh that's yeah i mean that's, that's for a now. big question that i've thought a lot about i think that um, just as a quick note, because I have thought about this kind of thing a lot. Um, I don't think that people vote selfishly, selfishly. I think that our political system, our media lets people down. So when you ask people in polls, you support clean energy, blah, blah, blah. Like there's vast majorities. Um, so if it was sort of a direct democracy, like we wouldn't have this kind of situation. The problem is that elections are, you know, just a complete, shit fight of different media and different information and quite literal lies so when people are voting they're not necessarily super well informed and the thing that actually i really struggled with from the last federal election was that the polling on what who people thought had the better climate policy there is a large number of people that care about climate and actually genuinely think that the coalition has a good climate policy so it's not that people don't care it's just that they're not especially well informed. And I don't think that, I don't subscribe to the idea that we just need to give people facts, but I think there's something to this idea of um, people making more informed choices at the ballot box. So I don't think that that results of elections are a way of justifying this whole view that people are selfish. I think there's a lot of complexity to unpack there. Um, that's probably the best answer I can give in a short period of time. <laughs> no, that's a great answer in a very short period of time. Thanks so much, Cam. Um, cool. So while we're talking about coronavirus, because I'm sure no one is sick of that topic yet, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to cover some more of the um, practical tips and ideas for negotiating the current uh, situation. So it's a really important time right now for climate communication um, for a lot of reasons. We're seeing a new understanding emerge among the public about how collective problems can have collective solutions. Um, at the same time, I think one of the biggest barriers to action on climate change has been this small government ideology and an unwillingness to intervene in the free market 
Um, and I think coronavirus has kind of completely demolished the relevance of this type of thinking. Like people understand that actually government, compassionate government intervention is really necessary and really valuable. Um, so I'm just going to work through some, um, some just key do's and don'ts because yeah, we spent a whole session on this easily. So the first, probably most important one is don't celebrate things like declining emissions. So <laughs> people are hurting right now. They've lost jobs. They've had their pay cuts. They're feeling really insecure. So talking about short-term benefits to emissions and the environment plays into the hands of our opponents who say that the only way we can cut emissions is to destroy our economy. So if we leave ourselves open to that argument, you know, that's not what we believe, but to a less engaged, less political audience that can actually have some resonance. Um, and here's just one example from the Australian um, where, you know, talking about opportunities and silver linings kind of risks backfiring and making us sound self-interested. So you notice in the um, subline here, that you know, they're having a dig though. You know, it's the Australian, so take it with a pinch of salt, but it's a, it's a narrative that has currency if we allow it to have currency, um, not just for our opponents. And that doesn't mean we don't talk about how things like how clean the air is um, without cars, for example. But instead of celebrating like a one-off anomaly, we need to use it to prompt people's thinking about what the future could be like and how sustainable solutions can solve our current challenges. So the flip side to that is do connect current challenges with sustainable solutions. Don't just do it in this whole disconnected way where it's like, how great is it that emissions are coming down and just leave it there. Um, so talk about how the decisions we make today will have long-term impacts on how our society and economy works for people and planet. Um, and there's also evidence, you know, um, that experience of one existential threat raises the salience of other existential threats. So I think there's a little bit of concern with an economic crisis um, that we're experiencing that people's concern about climate change is, is might go down. But this is different to the last financial crisis because um, we've all just realized how fragile our systems are and how vulnerable they are to disruption. So maybe to, instead of you know, celebrating declining emissions, um, talking about calls for preparedness, talking about health, um, and resilience and how climate solutions deliver those things could actually work really well right now. I think that hasn't been tested um, officially yet, but that's sort of where a lot of um, people that uh, focus on this kind of thing are thinking the messaging might go. Um, the next uh, really important thing is start with empathy. So our opponents are going to look for any excuse to stop us from talking about the climate emergency. And we saw it during the bushfires, you know, the whole now is not the time thing. People are fighting fires, their houses are burning down. And at least when coronavirus first hit, I think there was a sense that we couldn't talk about climate for fear of distracting our politicians and whatnot. But the reality is we can't afford not to have a conversation that connects climate action to the pandemic response. And the way through that is basically is to start with empathy. So always acknowledge the scale of the human tragedy, validate people's concerns, acknowledge that people are doing it tough, and then talk about how sustainable solutions can make things better, how we build back better. Um, it's a really good way of not coming across as tone deaf, but an opening space for talking about climate when people might be a little bit distracted. Um, the next point is don't, don't compete. Now, what I mean by this um, is probably 
summed up in this graph, which I'm sure many of you have seen one version or another of. Um, I saw a lot of it um, online. Now, this kind of graph, it might work for a deeply engaged audience that is already involved with climate activism. But when you think about it, what, what it's essentially saying is, it, like, and this is comparing deaths, right? It's like, look, our crisis is worse and killing more people than your crisis. Why aren't we acting the same way? Um, and if, if, if that's all our message is, um, then it just looks like we're just competing for attention. And to a broader, less engaged audience, it comes across as just self-interested and unpersuasive. And also to me, it just feels a little bit kind of negative and disempowering. Like it's, it's clever and it's essentially true, but it's whether or not it's, it's useful. Um, and I think that a better way of, of doing this is, um, is actually focusing on some positives. So building on the new sense of collective power that people have just experienced, this new sense of community, um, through the mutual aid groups, even as well as from the bushfires um, and this new understanding of government action. Instead of going, oh, our crisis is way worse than yours, go look at all these things that are happening like, and build, build on those positives. Um, now, here's an example um, from 350 in America. Um, it's, it's not as clever, but I think it's this kind of thing that's it's it's a better message for a broader audience it's more positive it connects with people's current concerns um next is don't use war metaphors which unfortunately is probably the dominant metaphor for coronavirus at the moment um so here are just some examples to fight coronavirus an army of volunteers nurses on the front lines an invisible enemy um the problem is is that re like hard science social science research has shown us that war metaphors do things like narrow our point of view they prime us for conflict um, instead of finding common ground which can find its way out in kind of racist xenophobic behavior um, they it blinds us to alternative ways to solve problems and when we use war metaphors with climate um, talking about climate change and the climate emergency, it's actually been shown widen partisan divide. So people just are primed for conflict, even if they're not aware that that's why and that's what's going on. So it actually can operate subconsciously. Um, war kind of language kind of also suggests that we need strongman leaders to make top-down decisions and using violent language at a time when people are already anxious and already scared can make things worse because fear causes people to bunker down and look after themselves and suppress kind of this open-minded behavior and altruism that we want. Um, and so a little task you can set yourself is to watch out for and note all the different ways that the language of war is used. You, you'll probably be really surprised by how much it comes up. And it'll sharpen your awareness of all kinds of other metaphors because up to 20% of everything we say is, is metaphor. So what are the alternatives? Um, well, there's plenty of amusing ones. I really like this one of comparing it to an orchestra. Um, uh, I thought that was quite clever, um, but it's also maybe a little bit niche um, because the best the best metaphors are ones that are versatile and widely understood. So one that's um, got gaining a lot of traction at the moment or as an alternative is to use the metaphor of a journey um, or a challenge. 
because a journey is a collective effort with obstacles, but no enemy. Um, so it focuses on how leaders can care for us and help everyone make it through together. And it emphasizes the need to be prepared and deal with uncertainty. And it also focuses our minds on where we want to go, prompting questions like, what's the world that we want to come out of this into? Um, and so I've just pulled together a few um, practical examples of how we could use the journey metaphor around coronavirus. But again, this also applies to climate communication. And in a broader sense, the more that we can weed out war language and use more collaborative, less aggressive language in our thinking will change our basic approach to a lot of different problems. Um, you can go, I'll, again, I'll send you the slides so you can go through them in your own time, but really important message for coronavirus. Um, and I've just put them all there together in a handy slide if you can look back um, again later. Um, are there any questions, um, Sam? There we go. Um, none that have popped up in the chat function, but if there is anybody with a question, um, just unmute yourself and, and pop it in, throw it out there now. I've got a question. When, um, okay, so this is not about journey metaphor. Well, maybe it is about journey metaphor. It's about, my question is about the progress and maybe I'm lacking knowledge about environmental science and engineering, but um, I used to work, I used, I used to study and work in the accounting sort of field. And for us, I, I didn't do budgets, but for budgets, it seemed like the departments that, um, or, or the departments in the company that got more funding um, from the CEO's office, they, they were able to speak the language, the language of finance a bit better with the CEO, because that's the language of business. And if they hold the pair strings, um, and they're looking for progress. How can you, how do you calculate the progress? Like extra trees built, uh, sorry, no, extra trees grown, um, land, we, uh, land rehabilitated. Um, I don't know. I'm not. I'm new to sustainability, but do you get what I'm saying? Like, how do you measure the progress in science in environment? Um, because that's what we all want in the end. I think. Yeah. Um, if you can't measure it, you can't quantify it to and justify the costs, you know? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I guess, um, you know, in the context of pitching for, you know, funds, a limited set of funds, you sort of... Even if I'm a community group for the council, even if I'm that, you know? Yeah, um, I think that's probably something that I should take offline. I don't know if I can give you a proper response right now oh, sorry um, are you cam by the way it's okay yeah i'm i'm cam i'm happy to I've oh got... sorry i wrote it before i wasn't sure whether that was you that's sorry. all right um yeah i think we'll have to take that one offline but happy to chat okay, about it happy to... yeah, yeah it's, it's a yeah, good cool. it's a good question um thank you so the next thing um i want to go to is sort of a bit more direct and a bit more practical in terms of what our message is um and that's having an effective call to action um, so, you know, often the point of using social media as an advocate is to get people to do things. So we need to have a call to action. We need to ask them to do things. Um, so, you know, most of what we've covered so far will help our community and our audience feel more empowered and engaged in a general sense. If we're creating active hope, building trust in democracy, emphasizing how powerful we are when we work together, then we're a long way there. But there are more specific things we can look at when crafting calls to action on social media. 
Um, first is impact matters to your supporters. So tell people why the action you're asking them to do matters. Um, and you need to join the dots and spell it out clearly. Don't assume that they understand that signing this petition or doing this thing will lead to a certain outcome. You need to be really clear with your um, calls to action. Um, and the other tip is that the problem must match the ask. And what I mean by that is don't say something like the world is burning. Will you sign my petition? Because no one's going to believe that as an effective call to action. There's no logical pathway between me signing a petition and stopping the world from burning. Um, so you need to kind of be aware of how you're framing what you're asking people to do and, and kind of slice off a little piece of the problem and go, this is the little tactical thing that we're trying to address now. And this is why it's important that we, you take part in this. So try to boil it down to its, its kind of small strategic moment instead of going, let's solve climate change, solve my, say, sign my petition. Um, and a good rule of thumb is if it doesn't convince you, then it's not going to convince anyone else. <laughs> I've done it myself. I've written something and, I, and then I've gone, no, I don't believe that. <laughs> so I've gone, I've gone and rewritten it. Um, and here are two just small examples of posts that I've written. I don't think they're particularly the most excellent examples and they're a little bit old now, but they're just kind of funny little random different examples. So the one on the left was just a, an old state election video and it was just, hey, share this video to make sure that people aren't left guessing get the pun where the Victorian Liberal Party stands. And again, that was kind of plugging into that whole thing of making sure that people who care about climate understand that there's a difference between the parties. Um, and that went really well. Um, or another kind of less political one on the right was there's a subtle theory of change in that call to action, which is this natural phenomenon in Victoria is incredible, but no one knows about it. It's more famous around the world. Let's change that, AKA share it again. It's not rocket science. It's not, it's not incredible. I, you know, there's nothing that special about it, but it's just thinking about little ways of working in kind of tactical calls to action. Um, yeah. Next interesting way of framing things is using reverse psychology. This is what the fossil fuel industry doesn't want you to know. This is what ex-politician doesn't want you to see, blah, blah, blah. That can work really well, especially on Twitter. It's a lot more, Twitter's quite kind of political and partisan. So that kind of stuff works well on Twitter. Um, but again, that idea of we're sharing this kind of risky censored information that no one wants you to see is, is can be an effective way of framing, um, your content, getting people to engage with it. Um, this is an interesting example. It's a bit old now, but I still really love it. Um, this is from when, uh, the, uh, native, uh, Americans in, uh, in America, obviously, um, were protesting the, um, Keystone pipeline being built on their land. And it was a huge, huge, um, movement. And during that time, there was word got out that the police force was using people who were checking in there on Facebook as a way of monitoring protesters. So I sent out a message going like, hey, can everyone just check in here to kind of muck up their process for monitoring us? And so and it ended up that 1.4 million people from all across the world checked in as this huge mark of, of solidarity. Like that was really massive. Um, if you're not sure what I mean by checking in, it's on Facebook. You can say, oh, I'm at this location. How cool is that? And you share it on um, with your friends. Um, and that was just a clear example of a simple call to action with, but that had a theory of change behind it that made sense. 
like, oh yeah, I can do this. I'll show my solidarity and help them along the way. Um, this last example is an interesting example. Um, this uh, petition to remove Fraser Anning from Parliament was, is I think still the largest petition ever in Australia's history. The interesting part about this is there's actually no theory of change behind it because there's literally no mechanism for him to be removed by popular dissent. Um, this is this is like what's called, you know, a symbolic action. So it's a not in my name kind of thing, you know. People just wanted to put their name to it and it just sort of gathered critical mass and everyone wanted to jump on board because they didn't want to be the one left out. So there's, you know, there is space for this kind of a symbolic moral statement when it comes to call to actions. It doesn't always have to be a point A to point B strategic kind of thing. If you want to get people to do something, you can appeal to their values and just say, put your name to this. Um, so just do a really, really quick exercise. Um, just for two minutes, because I don't want to run over time. I just want everyone to take two minutes to think about the last call to action that they actually did or that you did yourselves on social media. And then if you're comfortable, um, just sharing in the chat what it was and why you think it was effective. Um, so I'll give you a couple of minutes and you can either mute me if you want, but I'll just explain my recent example, which was... Um, I donated to the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Legal Service and their campaign to stop black deaths in custody. And I thought, and I was thinking why, why was this call to action one that worked for me? And it was because I like to donate kind of small organizations with less money. And I saw someone else praising their work on Twitter that had a link for donations. And the donation page was, was really good and made their work sound really effective. And so I wanted to contribute, especially because I wasn't able to attend the rally. Um, and I think thinking about our own actions can help us in a, in a more conscious way, can help us kind of break down what we actually need to do on social media because we're all experts. Um, so I'll just give, yeah, one or two minutes for people to type in some responses and you can all have a look at the answers in the chat window.
cool. There's some interesting stuff coming out in the chat now. Some interesting tactics using Google Docs. I love that. Uh, congratulations, Waitrell. You di divested. That's really good. Yep. We've got someone sharing bike petitions because they've got a lot of friends who uh, cycle. Cool. There's some great stuff coming up here. Um, I won't be able to go through all of it, but um, I hope you've all had a chance to look at some of those things. And I guess the point is not necessarily to read everyone else's responses, but there's some great things, but it's just having you think about, you know, as I said, we're all our own social media experts in a way. And it's thinking about a bit consciously about, Oh, why did I actually do that? And then listing the reasons. And it's a good way of unpacking because, you know, other people are probably, going to do the same thing. So if you can just go, okay, well, what was it about that that I found effective or what worked for me, then it can really help you with your own um, advocacy and social media. Um, you know, there's an endless amount of examples out there online um, and I couldn't possibly tell them, tell, tell all of them to you. Um, so uh, Sam, there's a quick question. Did you say? Yeah, there is a, yeah, there is a quick yep. question, Sam. So, um, uh, Rachel was saying that she often finds that when she's trying to engage friends or other people in her climate groups, that they feel that their own um, perceived lack of knowledge is a barrier to stepping up their engagement. So they don't want to write to their MP or because they feel that their um, lack of knowledge perhaps around science or economics isn't good enough and they're worried they'll get caught out. So can you speak mm. really briefly about the importance of stats and figures versus emotion in communicating? Oh. <laughs> That's another one of those ones you could run a whole presentation on. Um, I think, yeah, actually, I mean, that's a really good point, you know, because no, no one wants to be caught out, I guess, but um, I feel like there's a lot of, like people are quite hesitant about the climate issue to reach out in certain situations. because I think it's more partisan than it really is. Um, and I think the important thing is just to start with, um, your own values and why you care and tell your own story. So if you're contacting an MP, you don't have to like send them a copy of the IPCC report and break it down for them. All you have to do is go, I've got a kid or this is something that I really care about and I understand what's happening and like, this is really urgent. So we don't have to be scientists to care about an issue because it's something we're all affected by. Um, uh, and I don't really, think that yeah i don't think that's a great response um i think i would really like to think about that specifically a little bit more but i guess um uh the thing that really kind of helped me i guess get over that was just understanding that it's a moral issue as much as it is a scientific one and i think that if we stay in that realm then we don't have to get into debates about what percentage the ocean is absorbing or, you know, all of this kind of really technical stuff. We know the basic trends. Um, and can I, I think... Can I jump in for a little second, Cam? Yeah, totally, um, totally. 
because this came up last week in our um, webinar about climate conversations and mm. there was lots of conversation about um, leading with a personal story and leading with something that really means something to you in an emotional sense and um, whether it be like you say you know your children or you know whatever it is and, and people will have their own kind of I guess thing and their own kind of I guess attachment to the issue in an emotional mm. kind of way that will resonate with others but one of the um and so I guess there was a lot of lots of conversation last week about it's really it's the emotion that people attach to rather than the, the facts and figures but sometimes you can come um become unstuck um and I noticed somebody else has made a comment here as well that if you happen to be engaging with somebody who is a climate science denier, then they love to throw kind of stats and figures and things at you that, you know, that catch you off guard and perhaps don't align with, or, or, or you know, you're caught not knowing the, that particular stat. So, um, I mean, again, kind of this came up last week and we talked about we don't really need to be kind of engaging with climate deniers. It's not the Andrew Bolts of the world who we need to convince. And so just wondered if kind of, if you had a, a thought on that, maybe. I, yeah, I could say plenty about engaging with trolls, but I think what, I think what you said about, you know, values is, is probably is spot on. Like I think, and back to the question about kind of, you know, uh, volunteers feeling a bit hesitant. It's like the most powerful thing that you can bring to this is your story um, mm. and your values the science is there, you know, that's not unique to you. So like, it's good to know some of the facts, but your real power lies in your ability to talk about the things that you care about and the things that you love. And if you're not offering that because you don't know the intricate details of 400 page report, then I think that's a really big loss. And I think that if you explained it that way to someone, they'd probably be like, yeah, you're right. Um, in terms of engaging with trolls, um, Oh, look, I think the only ones that are relevant to us are the ones in parliament and we don't have to convince a single one of them. We just have to get them voted out. Like, and I think that the, there's this really big perception gap uh, among especially climate advocates that think that there are a lot more deniers out there than there really are. So there's done, there's this surveys done on this where they ask people how many, like what percentage of the Australian population do you think denies that humans are causing global warming? Not just even that it's happening, but humans are causing it. And People who are actively engaged always way overestimate the percentage. Um, and so I think it's easy to think that, you know, if you consume uh, our media landscape that, or that you spend any time on social media, that trolls or deniers are actually a lot more prominent than they really are. I think that, you know, I could speak more about this, but I think that if you think about what is most valuable, spend your emotional and intellectual energy doing, it's not, having arguments with people that have already decided that they disagree with you. It's actually trying to reach out to the vast majority of people out there who are reasonable and who can be convinced, but just need to hear a personal story from someone that they can relate to. Um, it's hard to ignore the trolls. You know, I manage a public environmental social media account, but I think just by pure exposure therapy, they just make me chuckle now because they're so unoriginal. Um, <laughs> And, I, and, and the thing is, like, when I first started doing it, I used to get really angry and really frustrated and, like, um, but, but I just try to distance myself from that emotional response and go, look, it's not worth my time and emotional energy. It's a bit different, I guess, if it's someone that you know. Um, 
you know, if it's just someone, you can just write, if it's someone you don't know, you just write them off as being an idiot or whatever and forget about them. But if it's someone you know, it can be a lot more challenging. But I think that will come back to probably a lot of what you covered in the conversations, training about how to have a constructive conversation and negotiate conflict, which I don't really have time to get into right now, I don't think. Um, so, no, that's not good. Yep. Let's let's keep moving forward. Um, so I've just thrown in at the end of this what your message is. I've just thrown in a few bonus tips because I thought they were useful but didn't really fit in with the structure. Um, so this first one is the idea of crisis tunity, creating a sense of urgency. So I reckon at least 50% of the emails you get from nonprofits, if you look at the opening kind of paragraph or sentence, will probably use something like this formula. Gets used a lot. I'll leave it to you to look at the example specifically in your own time. But if you present an opportunity and then follow it up with a crisis or a threat, everyone's like, oh, what can I do about it? You know, let's make something happen. It's a really good way of creating urgency. Um, next bonus tip is don't sell the features, sell the benefits. So this is like a, an advertising, uh, this is something out of the advertising playbook. And what it means for advocacy is means don't sell the policy, sell the outcomes of that policy and the benefits that it provides to people. Um, you know, this is just one example I came up with off the top of my head. Instead of asking people to support the campaign to improve home energy efficiency, ask them to support the campaign for lower energy bills and more comfortable homes. Like, hey, yes, I'll support that. It's, it's a lot more tangible. Again, not the best example, but talking about policy doesn't excite people as much as it is as, as it does talking about outcomes. You know, Coca-Cola doesn't you know, a single ad doesn't talk about the taste. It sells the lifestyle associated, associated around with drinking Coke and you'll get all these great benefits. Um, that's another little bonus tip. Uh, last bonus tip uh, is try to talk about climate damage, not climate change. I know we're all used to talking about climate change. It's got a familiarity bias associated with it. We need to be a bit more conscious about our language. But climate change is really problematic because it's a really passive construction there's no actors when something changes it's natural which i actually really think is fueling the reason why there's so many people that think that climate change is natural obviously there's the distinction because it kind of is in some ways historically but we call it climate change <laughs> um whereas using damage implies like agency someone's damaging like there's someone somewhere doing something it's not just changing um and and this focus groups and studies have shown that that language resonates much more strongly with uh, like a less engaged, persuadable um, audience. So that's the first section. <laughs> Hope that hasn't been too much for you all. Um, now we're going to get on to the second section, which is kind of more technical um, and less, uh, a bit more direct, you know, um, which is how to share your message. Um, so, First thing, we're just going to dive into the deep end. A little bit about the Facebook algorithm. Don't get too scared. Um, I'm just going to run through some basic ideas so you're not flying completely blind. And some people might know some of this stuff. Hopefully, you learn some, some new things. But as I said, I can't make everything go viral. Not what very few people can, unless you're a celebrity. But having this awareness and understanding will allow you to be a lot more tactical with how you're doing things. Um, Basically, if you're wondering what the hell is the Facebook algorithm, um, it's this wildly complex system that Facebook uses to determine what people actually see in their newsfeed. Um, and it uses thousands of data points. Um, but there are a few simple rules that you can apply, which also generally apply to other platforms as well. So the first one is, is content types. Um, so this is a general breakdown in order of what con kinds of content get reached reach the most people. 
Um, so live video, if you're producing live video, doesn't have to be amazing, but if you're saying the same thing in a live video as you would maybe in text, you are 100% gonna reach more people. Um, next down comes video. And I say captions are really important because you've got to think about um, you know, people on the train with no headphones. It's also really important for people with hearing, uh, hearing impairments. Um, and the great thing is that Facebook now has a feature that automatically generates video captions. So you can record a video of yourself speaking, saying some passionate message, asking people to do something, telling them why you care. If you upload it to Facebook, you can actually generate captions. Um, that applies for if you're managing a page. I actually don't know if you can do it per posting personally, but there's lots of ways of doing it that are easy and free online that you can uh, look up. Um, and I think that's important. Um, uh, so then next down is images, of course, um, then links, which is just news stories, things like that. Next down is text. And then bottom of the list is events, event posts for whatever reason, never do particularly well, even if they're posted by massive pages. Um, and so this is more of a kind of a general guide than a concrete rule. Of course, I've seen, you know, text posts go viral and videos that go nowhere, but if you're using video and images, you're giving yourself that leg up. Um, and you're increasing your chances of reaching more people. Um, so if you're thinking a way of promoting your event on Facebook, for example, don't just post the event, create content around it, post that content and put a link to the event in, in your post. Um, you're going to reach more people that way. Um, and making video might be a little bit more effort, um, but it's hundred percent worth it. So, um, you know, we all know the saying that a picture is worth a thousand words. Well, someone actually tried to figure out how many words a video is worth. And the result they came up with was 1.8 million words. Um, so think about the amount of effort it would take to write 1.8 million words versus one video. Um, yeah, you know, um, think about, you know, all the emotion you can communicate with body language and tone of voice that you can't with text alone. So it's a perfect medium for conveying authenticity and building the trust um, you need for your message to resonate. You know, maybe you can record a personal video about why you've gotten involved with this program or just share something you're doing personally to reduce carbon footprint. Or you could try submitting a video question to ABC's Q&A program. There's lots of ways of applying that. With graphics, I just thought I'd throw this in there. If you haven't heard about it, some of you might have. This tool called Canva is a really great graphics editing tool. You don't have to be a graphic designer or have any special skills. It's basically just a really simple drag and drop thing. I don't make a commission from them. Um, but I think it's a really great accessible and free tool if you need to make graphics. Um, so I just thought I threw that in there. When you are doing graphics though, you need to be aware of this thing called the text rule on Facebook. So basically um, it might be a little bit hard to see there, but Facebook algorithm is pretty smart and it knows when an image has lots of text on it. And if it has, if it passes a certain threshold, the algorithm will actually suppress how many people see that image. Um, and there's a tool you can use, which I've linked in the resources at the end. Um, you can actually go and check beforehand and you can see in this bottom example, I've just plastered all this green text over a cat picture. And it's telling me here, um, you know, your reach may be lower. There's too much text. Try reducing the text. Whereas the one at the top with no text obviously is fine. So somewhere in between that, don't just plus the text on everything because you'll actually be uh, shooting yourself in the foot. Next thing about the uh, Facebook algorithm is that comments are really important to the Facebook algorithm. 
um, it indicates that people are really engaged with that content. And so Facebook then goes, okay, well, we're going to show this. This has more comments, so we're going to show it to more people. Um, and a really easy way to not really gain that, but use that knowledge is ask people for a response. Ask them how a news story makes them feel. Ask them if they think a policy is a good idea. It's just something really simple that's easy for them to answer. I'd actually ask them to provide a response. And that way you're going to use the algorithm in your favor. Um, it also opens up discussion and gives you insights into the kind of people that you're reaching and what they think. Um, you could go further with this idea of asking for comments. Say you're meeting a local politician. Before the meeting, you could ask people to share their story or message for that politician as a comment on a post. Um, that way you can collect them and present them in your meeting. You don't have to have a fancy website or email tool or whatever to do that. On the flip side, um, if you engage with something negative, for example, say you post on a minerals council post or something, even though it's a negative comment, you might actually be helping it be seen by more people because that comment counts as engagement to the algorithm and it gets shown to more people. Um, so there's a famous quote that goes something along the lines of first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. Well, like for the deniers, let's just leave it at the ignoring stage because the algorithm will help them if you engage. Um, the next tip around uh, the Facebook algorithm is you need to post regularly um, and how often you post matters. So a key indicator for whether or not someone will see your content is how often they've engaged with it in the past. Um, it's called affinity. It's just a fancy word. Um, and ideally you should be posting at least a few times every week. And that way you'll build up a little bit of momentum with a small group of people who regularly like your content and that gets the ball rolling. Um, and if you haven't posted for a week or a month, you're not going to have that affinity um, group of people that Facebook knows care about your content and will show it to. Um, and if you don't have time to post all of the time, you know, it can be time consuming. Um, it's just share other pages content, find content from other pages that's performing really well um, and just share theirs. Um, and that way you don't have to write your own content. You've got this engaging content that you can then use for your own page and your own audience to intersperse with your own stuff. Um, are there any questions, Sam? Yep, there's one, Cam. Um, yep. So back to the, the point you made about um, events pages and posts not doing as well as, as others. There's a question here about um, from a community group who host a free community climate action series twice per month and would like to promote these more. So do you have any tips for spreading the word about events? Yeah, I've had, I've had that come up from a few people. I'm actually thinking about putting a whole session on event promotion. Not that I'm really an expert about it, but it's hard. Promoting events on Facebook is, is hard. And I don't really know why that is, to be honest, but it's a universal thing. Whenever I've seen GetUp, for example, post like just a straight up event thing on their page, it just never gets engagement. And I think part of it is that attending an event is like a really quite a high barrier ask. And there's no kind of essential content in that or anything to react to really. It's just more of an open invite. And so you know, for us at Environment Victoria, our main event recruitment strategy is we'll just set like email our email list, um, which obviously not everyone can do. But I guess I guess for event promotion on Facebook, I would encourage people just to think about like how they can use offline things, then channel people online. So um, email your friends, send them the link, get them to share the link with their friends, put up flyers. Um, I think. It's probably a little bit of a cop out for a session on social media, but 
um, it's, it's difficult. Um, I think you need to give yourself a long time to promote it and promote it constantly and keep reminding people about it. And then once you have a certain number of people in that have subscribed to the event, you can actually post content in the event. So when you go to the event page and you're an administrator, you can actually create posts that get shown to all the people in the event. So it's a really good way of keeping that event top of mind for people that have already RSVP'd. So in the week leading up to it, say you've got 30 people, 40 people that have registered as attending, obviously they're not all going to come. But if you're posting stuff in that um, event group, then they're all going to get notifications about it because Facebook knows that it's something that they really care about. They've RSVP'd to the event. So they're actually going to get like direct notifications in their timeline so-and-so is posted on this event that you've RSVP'd to, which is a good way of reducing the fall-off rate. Um, I think also this is where even small groups should look at a little bit of paid promotion. So I think there's probably a bit of a barrier of getting involved with, with Facebook advertising, but uh, you don't need to spend a huge amount of money to get results um, if your strategy is really targeted. And event responses is one of the things you can put 20 or 30 bucks on um, promoting your event and probably get 10 or 15 people respond. Um, so I think I might need to do a session on that, but I can't answer everything. I hope that's helpful. No, um, but that, that is helpful. Some good tips in there. Thanks. Yeah. Okay. I just want to do a quick energizer now so people aren't falling asleep. I, I don't want to go too much overtime. So I'm just going to do this really quickly. You can do it if you want. You don't have to. It's just, just get up and in YMCA style, spell out your name just to get the blood flowing. Cool. I saw a few smiles there. I hope, I hope some of you enjoyed it. I've never quite figured out how to do N. Um, that's something I'll need to practice, I think. Um, so next step, um, build a community, not just an audience. So I guess this is just another way of thinking about how you use your time online because it can feel a little bit disheartening when you kind of are taking the time to post content and it's not getting the level of engagement that you'd like. As I said before, building an online following um, is something you really have to commit to and takes time. Um, but you can do other more directed tactical things with social media than just go for numbers. Um, the first is it's a pretty simple one is use Facebook groups. Um, so the Facebook algorithm also prioritizes um, individuals posts and group posts over pages of organizations or businesses. So if someone's a member of a group, they're way more likely to see a post from that group than they are to see a post from a page. Um, you know, so if you, you've got something that involves bringing a small group of committed people together, maybe actually a Facebook group is better than, than a Facebook page. Um, uh, so yeah, that's a good tactic to think about. Um, and so, um, yeah, that can be an amazing tool in building community connections as well. It doesn't just have to be people, you know, so I've put a few examples here. Um, Save Preston Market was a campaign related local group. 
um, or there's, you know, the examples of all the affinity and mutual aid groups that popped up around everywhere. Sort of local place-based groups work really well. Um, uh, and so one idea, for example, would be instead of just randomly posting stuff on Facebook, letterbox your apartment complex or your street or your block and put a link on that flyer inviting people to join the group. Um, and then you can use that to meet your local meet people in your local area and organize ongoing actions. Um, you know, invite people to a talk hosted by me <laughs> or whatever, you know, um, and identify local opportunities to take action or, you know, you could create a support group to help people during heat waves, for example. There's all sorts of ways you can use Facebook groups. Um, and I think that it's a really good thing to think about. I think a really important thing with groups is that it's really easy to set up a group. You know, everyone's like, oh, let's just create a group. But you do need to um, have a bit of a strategy around what you're going to use it for. And someone needs to be responsible for making sure that people are posting regularly. Um, yeah, that's just a point on Facebook groups. Um, another Cam, thing. Can I, jump, can I jump in just for a second? Yep. Sorry yep. to interrupt you, Cam. I'm just um, mindful that we're probably running a little bit over mm. time. And I just wanted to leap in and ask everyone's permission to go a little bit um a little bit later maybe till about eight o'clock or so and just hope that you can stick around but yes. sorry to ruin the flow cam my no that's all right sorry i did lose track of time a little bit i timed no, no, I, I, I i went through everything and it sort of fitted neatly when i practiced i'm almost done i promise <laughs> no no and it's, it's it's great i just um yeah i just wanted to just check in with it yeah. but apologies for interrupting i'll jump off now uh that's all right uh, and as I said, if you have to go, but you've got a question you really want answered, I'm really happy for you to email me, um, which you'll get the slides and my emails in there. Next thing is, um, you know, don't just rely on the algorithm and wait for people to share your stuff. Um, sometimes you can just ask people to share your content. Pretty simple. Um, you can do something like recruit a small group of people um, and say, okay, we've got this Facebook page. We're trying to build an audience. Explain to them actually how the algorithm works, what I've just told you, and that actually them committing to share stuff regularly will really help um, and get them to make an explicit commitment. So it could be, will you share two posts every week and leave two comments a week? Um, and then you can email those people each week with content just as a reminder. And if you've got 10 people um, doing that twice a week, you know, that's, that's something that's getting a little bit of momentum going. Um, you know, it's a simple thing. Um, the other thing is obviously is reaching out to other pages. Um, and you can do that really easily on Facebook by using the message button on a Facebook page to contact um, the administrator, administrators. And you'll probably get one of two responses. You'll either get nothing at all um, if they don't check their messages or hopefully the more likely outcome is you'll actually end up just directly contacting whoever it is that has control over that social media account. So you don't have to go through different levels of bureaucracy or approval. If someone's reading that message, it means that they have the keys to the social media account. So you can just go directly to the people that you want to talk to. Um, and you can also, when you open the little chat window, it'll tell you how responsive they are to messages as well. That can set your expectations. So these guys said they, I think they typically respond within an hour. So you probably can expect a response. Um, uh, and when you're doing this, best aim to, for small or medium sized, like aligned pages and groups, um, like at Environment Victoria, we kind of get inundated with a lot of requests. Sometimes we do share them if they're relevant to our work. Um, uh, 
And another tip from my experience of being on the end of those requests is don't just ask them to promote your event and send them a link to the sign up page. Um, you got to do their work for them. So that means give them a graphic or a video, give them suggested options for text um, so that if they want, they can just copy and paste um, because it takes time to create a post. So if someone goes, oh, we've got this event, can you help us share it? But like doesn't, doesn't provide any engaging text or anything like that, we're less likely to do it because then we have to put in time and we might be quite busy with other things. Um, the next, this is just a little kind of technical trick that you can use. So um, you can actually invite people to like your page. So um, uh, it doesn't matter how small, small or big your page is. It's a, it's a really useful strategy for increasing the number of likes you have and the number of people that you can reach. So what you do is, when you've got a post that has, you know, 10 likes, obviously this one has 700. So there were quite a lot of people we can invite from it, but it doesn't have to be that many. It could be 10. Um, if you click on that little um, text there, which says how many people have liked it, it will open this window. And next to all the names, you'll see these little buttons which say liked, invited, or invite. So if someone's already liked your page, obviously it says liked. If you've already invited them to like the page, then it will say invited. But if it says invite, just hit that button and they get a little notification going, so-and-so has invited you to like X page. It's a little prompt to get people to go, oh yeah, no, I actually did like their stuff, but I just didn't like the page when I saw the post in my feed. And at you know, the, your, like your growth in likes will increase like noticeably. Um, we've had that with Environment with Victoria. We're almost starting to run out of people to invite sometimes, but <laughs> at the start, it can be really useful. And you don't have to sit there clicking buttons constantly. There's actually a free tool that will automate it for you. So if you do end up getting hundreds of likes, you don't have to sit there pressing buttons. Just get this tool. I've linked it at the end. It, will, it presses the buttons for you. So you can just go get a cup of tea or something while it does it. Next point is um, have a strategy. Even if you're running a really small page or even just an individual, it helps to think about your strategy because social media is so broad. There are thousands of tactics and approaches. So you really need to narrow down and think about what your focus is, um, who you're targeting, what you want them to do and um, how you're going to do it. So um, yeah, basically every strategy does these things. They define your audience, they decide what you want them to do and then they plan how you're going to draw that connection, which is what platforms are you going to use? What content will you share and create? This doesn't have to be a piece of art. Just start with an educated guess and then refine it on the run. It doesn't have to be incredible. Just start with something simple and then test and revise. Um, there's loads of different frameworks for doing this. So I'm just going to offer two as a way to help out. And maybe you can apply a couple of them after this session. First one is uh, one I really like called the no feel do framework. I like this template because it really focuses on what the audience needs and your role in, in their journey. Um, uh, and we've applied this at Environment Victoria with our Instagram strategy. Um, and it's just really useful. It's pretty straightforward. You just fill out the boxes. Um, again, I'll give you the slides so you can uh, pinch the slides and use that uh, for your own purposes. Really easy, really simple way of thinking strategically about different elements of your strategy. Next one is ladders of engagement. Um, it's another useful way of framing your strategy. I've just typed in a random example of different actions. Um, so most people are going to stay at the bottom of that ladder. 
and not everyone will follow that exact sequence and that's totally fine. What's important is that you're providing those opportunities for people to step up the rungs along the way and you're tailoring your social media and your broader communications in a way that makes it easy for supporters to make that next step up. So it can be useful for framing like your tactics and your content. Uh, next, targeting decision makers. I'm just trying to fly through this because I'm sure people are waiting to have dinner or cats need to be fed. Um, firstly, simple one, if you're targeting a politician or a corporation, look at what platform they're most active on and target them there. There's no point targeting a politician on Twitter if they've got an account but haven't written a tweet for a year. Um, so find out where they post the most and target them there. Pretty straightforward. Um, another even more straightforward one, especially if you're posting as an individual, but if you're targeting a public figure and tagging them in your post on Facebook, make sure your privacy is set to public because otherwise they're not going to see your post. Um, and I can guarantee you that at least the more prominent politicians do check their Facebook mentions. So yeah, good little tick there. Um, uh, also, if you're doing more traditional stuff like writing letters or meeting your MP, you can make it more visible by sharing it on social media. So, you know, if you write a letter, you could read it out before you send it um, and then read out their response in a video or something like that. It's a simple way of increasing the public accountability and the impact of what you're doing. This is an example from one of Environment Victoria's meetings where we baked a cake that had a graph of Victoria's emissions and how much came from brown coal on it, like a pie, a literal pie chart in cake form so a bit corny but you know you got to do what you got to do to get people's attention um and so you know whenever we have a meeting or do something like that we're always making sure that we're sharing it in a public way on social media because and making sure that the mp knows that that's what's happening um a next example in the current context you could even hold it something like a digital rally um to visually show your power so um, this is an example from our Stop AGL gas import terminal campaign where we got a bunch of local activists in to make their own signs and then we, they all held it up at one point. We took some big screenshots and then used that in a Facebook post, um, which I think looks really cool. Um, and that's something that you could do. You know, as you can see from our example, you don't need a huge number of people to have something that looks visually effective. Um, I would actually point out something that we stuffed up in that post, which is we didn't actually tag AGL in that. I can guarantee you they saw it though, because they monitor their social media, they're a big corporation, they would have seen that mention, but we should have tagged them in it, but we've been smashing them for like two years now. So but they're, they're watching us, um, but yeah, good to point out your own mistakes. I think no one's perfect. Um, Here's another example. Again, this wasn't from a digital rally. Someone just sent an email out to people they knew being like, hey, can everyone sign up to create, like creatively create one letter and then send me your photo and then they put them all together. So you don't have to do it all online on Zoom at the same time. You can just do it in a more simple way. I think the visual effect is really cool. Um, yes. Um, this next one, I'm gonna try and race through this. Um, I threw this in here because I think it's really important um, for how we can use social media strategically, which is focus on critical moments. So we can't go viral all of the time, obviously, but if we pick a key moment that we want to really go hard on, then that's something that's achievable. Um, so uh, an example, I'll provide an example. It's a little bit old, but I think it's still a really good example of how it can work. Um, 
Environment Victoria used Twitter to target um, the French company Engie, who were the owners of Hazelwood Power Station when it was still running during their AGM. So during their AGM, we put this huge push into the, a single idea of trashing their brand with the Hazelwood and the mine fire, which is something that their overseas investors might not have even heard about through the company's greenwashing. So we made sure, and we made sure that everything was posted together using our hashtag NGSecret. Um, and our push worked really well. Anyone searching for that corporation on Twitter, our content was the first thing that they saw. Um, uh, and it, yeah, so it means, it means that it was getting a lot of visibility during their AGM. Um, we reached almost half a million people with content with that hashtag. Um, and the accounts for NG and our hashtag trended in Melbourne and it also trended in Australia, which is pretty solid effort. If you're trying to put a dirty little secret on a company's agenda during their AGM, I think we kind of nailed that. Um, <laughs> and I'm not saying there's a direct correlation between our Twitter efforts and what happened the other week, but you know, we got the result we wanted at the end of the day. <laughs> I find that an incredibly satisfying uh, video to watch on repeat. Um, and the thing is, you, you can do it too. So the steps that I followed to make that happen were really simple and there was nothing rocket science here about it. You might be aiming a bit smaller, maybe a local council meeting or getting a local event to remove fossil fuel sponsorship or something like that. Um, but there's pretty much a formula to making this work, which is you need to schedule tweets beforehand for that day. Um, and use a variety of content, have images, have GIFs, have emojis, have plain text, have it all scheduled, ready to go, workshops beforehand, and then it'll just post automatically. You don't have to think about it. Um, between 6.30 a.m. and 8.30 a.m. works really well um, for Twitter. The next step is line up influential helpers in advance, um, but not too far so they, they forget about it, um, maybe a couple of days beforehand. Um, Ask them to write their own tweets because um, uh, it's more powerful than just sharing your stuff. Um, and yeah, share them in on the strategy, what's going on and why you need them to help out. And influential doesn't mean they're celebrities. It just means looking for organizations and people who have a larger following than maybe you do, but would be willing to help out. And you only need maybe five or 10 to sort of get the ball rolling with that. Next one is pretty simple. Contact all your friends and coworkers, get them on board, share them in on the strategy, tell them what's happening and how they can help. Send them the pre-written text and the pre-written images to use themselves. Next one, again, use promoted tweets. So Environment Victoria, there's a bit of a technical barrier there, but it's not that hard. There are online tutorials. Environment Victoria spent maybe $60 on promoted tweets for that event. So don't get caught up in this perception. You need to spend massive amounts of money to get into paid advertising. If you have a laser targeted strategy, you can be pretty effective with a small amount of money. Um, I'll share the blog that all these tips come from. I literally just followed what this guy wrote. Um, and the link is in the resources at the end. You might already know this from what I've been saying. Twitter is a great way to reach local decision makers and journalists. Um, it's a smaller but a politically engaged audience. And you can use it to interact with people and build relationships that you can't, in a way you can't really on, on Facebook um, with people that you don't know personally. Um, lastly, you know, you can get bogged down in all of this, all these rules and technicalities, but like, just 
have fun and be creative. I think like having, you know, being creative is one of the best parts of social media because people love it. So I love being cheeky with Environment Victoria's um, social media accounts um, and making politically pointed comments. So if you can come up with something that's a little bit humorous, like just go for it. People love it. Um, so creativity goes a long way to overcoming all of these barriers. Um, of course, you need to temper that with a bit of seriousness. So that was a reply I wrote to that tweet so that we weren't being too facetious because people do die during heat waves. So it's about being tactful. And that's the end of my content. Uh, I was only 10 minutes over. Um, <laughs> so uh, we've got time for questions now. I hope I haven't fried all your brains completely. So Sam, do we have any ones that we need to answer now? Or should we just throw it open for people to put their hands up or? We've got one question, Cam, and that is, um, is it okay to have the same posts on Facebook and Instagram? Absolutely. Uh, I would, um, the thing, obviously they're different platforms. So Instagram's uh, more difficult with sharing links, but if you're sharing images or videos, um, there's no reason why you can't use the same content. You'll probably find that there'll be different results for different things because you're going to have more than likely a younger audience on Instagram. That's just the general demographic of the platform but there's no rule that says you can't post exactly the same thing on both platforms okay terrific thank you so we've probably got time for say two questions before we close for the evening is there anyone who wants to just quickly unmute themselves and ask cam a quick one nothing if questions um, do come to mind um, later, you know, you're lying in bed at 3 a.m. and think, oh, my gosh, I should have asked Cam, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> um, we'll be sending out the, uh, the slides, as I mentioned, and you can be in touch with us or with Cam to ask those questions. Um, so, yeah, the, the, there is certainly opportunity down, down the track to ask. ask uh, is, is there time to talk about advertising, how to do it? Absolutely not. Uh, I'm very happy to show people how, but not right now. It's, it's not impossible, but it, it can get pretty technical. And, um, I think that people, more people should learn how to do it. And I'm, I, I really believe that, but I, I don't have time now to do it because it is a whole, whole additional session. But again, um, my email is up there. So I'm pretty passionate about sharing skills and democratizing knowledge and skills. So I, I really encourage people to get in touch with me. Uh, about stuff like that and maybe I can talk to the Yarra Council about doing something like community organisations, social media promotion or event promotion or something like that. It's something that other people have asked about before. So if there are, I'm just on that Cam, if there are ideas for other sessions that people have like advertising or events promotion was another one that came up. When I do send the slides um, to you in the next couple of days, please write back and let us know that. Let us know what sessions you might be interested in attending and we can look to schedule more down the track. Okay, so um, cool. I guess the very last thing um, I'll, uh, throw in before we close is that um, we'd like to at Yarra Council we'd like to know what you're up to we'd really like to know what kind of tips and techniques you put into practice after tonight's session and we'd really like to know what you're using or what you're doing on social media to promote climate action and advocacy so some of the hashtags that we're using are up on the screen now climate action Yarra climate emergency Yarra and Yarra life 
And we'd be really keen for you to tag us in your post so we can have a look at what you're doing to promote climate action and advocacy, especially in the city of Yarra. So the first one there the Yarra, at Yarra City Council is the Facebook um, page and the at City of Yarra underneath is the Instagram account. So um, yeah, keep us posted, show us what you're doing. We're really keen to have a look and um, yeah, feel free to jump on those hashtags as well. Um, and also just because I didn't actually show the slide, this slide is the resources yep. slide. So there's some links and stuff in there, um, a few additional little tidbits um, and more detailed communications guides as well, if anyone wants to delve more into that detail. So that'll be in the slide deck too. Real. All right. Well, on that, Cam, I'd just like to say an enormous thank you um, from me and everyone who joined tonight. I just the, the really nitty gritty tips and techniques that you've given <laughs> us all. I feel, you know, I feel really um, much better equipped to be, uh, to be posting on social media and to be kind of, yeah, really trying to get, gather, you know, advocate, put together action and advocacy posts and try and really motivate people to take action and advocacy via social media than I would have helped before. So um, thank you. It's been super, super useful. Like I said, super tangible and practical and I just love the nitty-grittiness <laughs> you know no it's just, it's real stuff that you can use so yeah so yeah. thanks so much Cam and I'd really love it if everybody else um just gave Cam a, a wave of thank you and a clap of thank you as well <laughs> thanks so much thanks everyone it's been great um I'm glad you appreciate it yeah always happy to share my knowledge and um yeah really appreciate the council actually for the opportunity I think it's really great that you're giving other people the opportunity to participate in something like this for free um is there's not a lot like that out there. So yeah, great. Um, great cool. to be part of it. Thank you. Lovely. Thanks so much, Cam. And thanks again, everyone, for sharing your Thursday night with us. And um, we will, like I said, send the slides and maybe see you another time. Thank you. Good night, everyone. Thank you. Thanks, thanks. Cam and Sam. Thank you.